Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. This is God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come thanking you for your word, and we pray that now as we look at it, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from it. Would you teach and instruct us? Would you give us great Uh, not just insight intellectually, but would you cause our hearts to understand these words and all that you mean for us in them? Lord, we look to you. We can't do this in our own power. We're easily distracted. Our minds are filled with many worries and anxieties in this life. We have other things that captivate our thoughts. We lack understanding. Lord, would you do the work that only you can do now? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, this uh, chapter, Marker 5, begins the Sermon on the Mount. Possibly the most famous sermon, if not just for its title alone. People don't really know much about the Sermon on the Mount except for the often quoted lines from the Sermon on the Mount that people seem to want to use often ripping them out of context or using only those lines, neglecting the other parts of the sermon to the detriment of the overall message. You've heard it. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Judge not that you be judged. I think that's probably the most quoted line from this sermon by unbelievers. Um, none None of that removes the truth of those lines, but it was a sermon given altogether, and it has meaning in its overall context. It is a provocative sermon. Even just the part that we read today, it's much longer than this, as we'll see, it goes through the end of chapter 7. We're looking at just the beginning. It is both provocative and it is beautiful. Some scholars believe this is the same sermon that Luke records in chapter 6. Others believe they are similar sermons preached on different occasions. I don't think we need to get too hung up on that. In the time that Jesus was on earth, he did a lot of preaching Uh, The Gospels don't contain all of his preaching, and even what we have recorded, we can be quite understanding that there were things that one Gospel writer would record and another Gospel writer would leave out, and vice versa. And so we would have different accounts, so we shouldn't get too tripped up on any differences that we see, or even we're not told it's the same sermon, even though there are a lot of similarities. It's quite possible that Jesus used the same material in different sermons, and so it was delivered differently and so forth. I think it's helpful to remember what John closed his gospel with when he wrote, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself 
could not contain the books that would be written. As I mentioned, the Sermon on the Mount is much longer than just the Beatitudes. We're beginning here uh, for the next few weeks. We'll be in the Beatitudes. It goes on to the end of chapter 7. In this sermon are many points and proclamations along with commandments in it. And one of the first things we notice is our inability to measure up to it. It is a lofty sermon. There are, uh, therefore, I think some things that are worth considering at the outset, things that we should consider today, not just about the Beatitudes, about the whole sermon, but I want us to keep in mind as we move throughout it. First, it is the sermon of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus came proclaiming. So it tells us what the kingdom is to look like. It tells us how to enter into it. And it tells us the requirements for its citizens. And again, what we notice right away is that we cannot measure up. No one can read even just these opening words of the Beatitudes and say, done all those, check. None of us, ever. Uh, And and in that sense, it it isn't a checklist to accomplish. Uh, So we don't need to treat it as such because it's impossible for us to accomplish. Much like the law of God, which the sermon represents, the sermon explains the law of God. It explains it at a heart level. And one of the purposes of the law is to show us that we cannot measure up to it, that we cannot meet its holy standard. So an initial reading of this sermon, or every time we come back to it again, can lead us to despair. How can I be pure in heart? How can I love my enemy? How can I turn the other cheek? Kind of interesting that Luther is translated in English. He calls the Sermon on the Mount Moses quadrupled (laughs) or Moses to the highest degree. The first purpose then is that we should recognize our unworthiness, our inability, our state of spiritual lack. In other words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Since we cannot measure up, if we are to enter into this kingdom, someone had to do so in our place. And so this sermon also describes Jesus in that he personifies and fulfills all that we see described here. He is the ultimate kingdom citizen. But he's more than that. While he is our highest example, he isn't simply our example. Jesus is our Savior. He came as our substitute. And so while the Sermon on the Mount may at times feel heavy, and I think it's good that it does, I think it should feel heavy, it should also lead us to praise of Christ for all that he has done in fulfilling it, for his obedience in our place, for the great love of our triune God who set this rescue plan into place so that we might be saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Since Jesus has obeyed the law perfectly, we receive his obedience by faith, and that faith then begins to produce fruit in our lives that looks more and more like the kingdom. In other words, we begin growing in these ways that we read about. We begin growing in mercy, growing in meekness, growing in purity, in peacemaking, and so forth. And not just the Beatitudes, but as we go through the sermon, we'll see the other aspects as well. So a key point to remember as we work our way through this is while we cannot work our way into the kingdom of heaven by its requirements because we come through the free gift of God's grace by faith in Jesus, upon entry into the kingdom, we begin growing and looking more and more like the king. And so this sermon describes our king. 
Like any true hero, we aspire to be like him. We strive, we labor, we fight, we strain to grow, to take hold of, to possess, to emulate what is ours in the end by grace. That what we discover when it's all over is that he has been at work in us all along. As we read in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So for an unbeliever to take this sermon and try to perform it will end only in frustration because it is an impossibility. For the believer who has taken hold of Christ by faith, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, these things become our desires. We begin to see an increase, a movement, a progress. We call this sanctification. Sometimes it's dramatic, can seem instantaneous, but I will tell you most of the time it is not. Most of the time it is slow and we struggle to even see it. So the description of the kingdom citizens in the Sermon on the Mount gets transformed when we understand this. From a list of requirements of things that we must do, which we really can't, to this holistic description of what God is doing in our lives according to His love. In other words, in this statement of pronouncement of both blessing and promise, in the end we discover it is God who is doing these things in us, giving these things to us. We are blessed or called blessed in this introduction by God. And with the pronouncement of this blessedness, comes these promises. Both the Beatitudes and the promises are gifts of God to us. If you don't hear anything else I say today, let me say this again. Both the Beatitudes and the promises are gifts of God to us. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes only. I say that to you now to prepare you. We're only going to get through verse 3 today. We'll get through all of them. This is intentional. It's by design. I've been planning this before we even started Matthew, that when we got to the Sermon on the Mount, we were going to slow things down. I think this is good. It's good for me. I think it will be good for you uh, to look and dive deeply into the words of Jesus, to consider what he said, to consider the weightiness of his words. So keeping this in mind as we work our way through the Beatitudes, but also the entire sermon The language of Scripture is wisdom and grace. I've said this before, and I'll say this again. Uh, If we take the Bible and turn it into something like a medical dictionary, where we go to it and we look for a a disease and a a diagnosis and a a cure, a remedy, uh, we will become frustrated. If you try to interpret the Bible apart from wisdom and grace with a wooden literalism, you will become frustrated. If you treat the Bible as a book of sayings that are magical, if you read them, speak them, or memorize them, you will miss what Scripture is. The Bible is the Word of God. It is living and active and sharper than a sword in that it can penetrate into our hearts. We often ask ourselves the questions that Paul asked in Romans 7. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why don't I do the things that I want to do? And what Scripture does through the language of wisdom and grace is expose our hearts by God's Spirit, helping us to see where we need to repent and look to Christ in faith. It does the work that it is promised to do. And that's the second thing I want to mention is that it comes with a promise, that it will not return void. God's Word is sent with intent. It has a purpose. And God says 
it will accomplish that purpose. Because after all, he is the omnipotent sovereign and it is his word. So it's just logical that it's going to accomplish its purpose. So when we come to passages like we will see in the Sermon on the Mount that might seem to contradict each other, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's just a few verses later in chapter 5. And then in, in chapter 6, Jesus said, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. If we come to that with this wooden literalism, it sounds like a contradiction. It sounds like Jesus is saying two different things. He goes on to say that not only about giving, though, we'll see he says that about praying, he says that about fasting, and there becomes a principle in terms of our good works overall. So a wooden literalist, literalism of these two portions of Scripture could frustrate us. But when we understand the language of wisdom and grace, we see in both of these a harmony, that first our works can be a testimony to others that they might see our good works and glorify God in heaven. And our works can also be something we do for the praise of men. And we all know this. What's the difference? The difference is our hearts. There are times where I can pray to the glory of God and I could say the same words at another time and do it to the praise of men. There are times I could give to the glory of God and other times I could give to be noticed. Or it may come in the form of, of talking about what we've done. I don't know if you're ever tempted to do that, but you, know, you just drop it into a story. You know, yeah, that time when I was doing such and such for this person in need, you know, I, I saw this happening. We just, we just kind of throw it in for the praise of men. The difference is our hearts. And our hearts are what Jesus goes after in this sermon and indeed in all of his teaching. Understanding the language of wisdom and grace will help us see this in all of Scripture. This is not a new idea. This is not something that Jesus brought in his, in his coming. This is something God had been explaining to his people all along. When he called Israel to be a people for himself, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It is our hearts that need the piercing work of the sword of God's word. So let me sum those things up. This is probably the longest introduction, yes, I'm looking at the clock. That's why we're only getting through verse 3. I felt like these were, these were good things, though, that we needed to look at before we get into the Beatitudes. Let me sum those things up. This is what I want us to keep in mind. One, it is impossible for us to do these things perfectly. None of us can measure up to God's holy standard. Second, Jesus has done what was impossible for us to do so that through faith in him we benefit by being credited with his righteousness. Third, because he has fulfilled what we read of the citizens of the kingdom here, we see him not only as our example, but as our savior. And as our great king and great hero, we long to become like him, to live as he lived. The father has promised that those who trust the son will be made like him. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Therefore, every beatitude and its promise is a gracious gift of God to those who trust him. These are God's gifts to us. 
So may this sermon then move us to despair only so far as it leads us to run to Christ to repent. May this sermon move us to obey, not in our own power, but only through reliance upon the Spirit bearing fruit in us. And may the Sermon on the Mount cause us to praise Christ for His perfect obedience in our place. Looking now at verse 1. Notice the setting. Matthew mentions the crowds. Jesus sees them, and he goes up to the mountain. Now, there are a number of things that we could infer from this. We don't know. It's not spelled out. But it seems to be that he's positioning himself not to flee from the crowds, but rather to, 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 to be in a, a position where he might be heard. Uh, if you've ever been to Israel or seen pictures of the region of Galilee, you know that the mountains in this area are not like the Rockies. Uh, this is more... Some of you, if you're from an area in the Rockies, you would call these hills. Uh, you know, Georgia, we might call these mountains, but they're, they're, just, they're just grand hills. And so there is um, uh, one area in particular outside of Capernaum that kind of creates a natural amphitheater. That's the, that's the area that always comes to my mind when I picture uh, this, this where Jesus goes and, uh, and, and gets up where others can hear him. But we notice that the disciples come to him. And while the sermon is for the benefit of all the crowds, anyone who would hear, anyone who would listen, it is addressed to the disciples. Much like a sermon that is preached here on the average Sunday, unbelievers may be addressed in the sermon, and the proclamation of the gospel is for their benefit as well, but the sermon is primarily aimed at believers. And so this sermon is for us, for us who follow Christ in faith. It is applicable to us in our own day. Matthew then describes the action of Jesus that he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Jesus is again teaching the nature of the kingdom of God. And in this we see both old and new. It is old in that what God has required from the beginning hasn't changed. We could go back to the Deuteronomy passage, Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. We could think of just a number of summary phrases, trust and obey. This was the message that God gave to his people again and again. But it is also new in that Christ's coming brings to fulfillment the redemption promised. What had been promised through the prophets all along was now unfolding. He opens the way for us to approach God as sons and daughters. It's new in that the external measures of the tabernacle worship were about to be fulfilled in Christ who is the Lamb of God, changing the way that we approach Him in that regard as well. We now worship Him in spirit and truth wherever we are. It is new in that the promised helper will soon be sent, so that we know God's presence inwardly, knowing that He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He makes His temple within us. Certainly more that could be said about both the old and the new, but I also want us to see that there is seeming structure to the sermon as well. Matthew records eight beatitudes or statements of blessing with their promise here. And of these eight, some have suggested that the first four deal with our relation to God and the last four deal with our relation to others. We have to be careful doing this. We don't want to slice this or compartmentalize this beyond what the text says. But I think it's fair for us to note these things or notice them in the same way that we look at the Ten Commandments and notice that the first tablet or the first four commandments deal with our relation to God and the the last six, the second tablet, deal with our relationship to fellow man. And again, distinction may or may not be helpful. We have to be careful not to go beyond what the text says, but it's worth noting. Another thing that's worth noting is there seems to be progression in the Beatitudes. 
Again, Jesus doesn't explain or exegete this this way, so we have to show care. But I think the notion is worth considering that we must first become poor in spirit before we can grow in any other way. Poverty of spirit is essential to faith. No one comes to God apart from His gracious work. He he brings us to the end of ourselves in saving us. As we come to faith, we also discover a mourning over our sin and so forth. We could jump down in the list and note that no one is pure in heart. No one is a peacemaker who isn't first poor in spirit. And as we'll see when we get to the end, the high mark of our growth is actually persecution. That's the eighth one. We'll talk about that more when we get there. But let me say, this is not simply persecution. You may know Christians who are, are, are often calling their, their experiences in life persecution uh, when they're just jerks. But this is persecution for righteousness sake. So if you make a mess everywhere you go and try and call that persecution, you need to look back at blessed are the peacemakers. And so you see in this, there is progression. Now, what I want to be careful of here is that we don't turn this into a recipe or a formula. The language of wisdom and grace, the language of scripture is antithetical to formulas. We walk by faith, not by checklists. Yet our faith is not opposed to logic, to reason. They're not at odds. Wisdom, in fact, brings together faith and reason. And that's what our hearts need, both trust and understanding. And so with that, we then come to verse 3, where Jesus utters the first line of the sermon saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The term blessed is one that we need to talk about because it's come to mean something, I would say, in the last 20 years, 25 years, something different than maybe it it meant in our culture before then. Today, people use the word blessed all the time. And, uh, it's, it, you know, maybe at one time we might have thought it was a code language among Christians to, you know, let each other know, uh, what, you know, we were on the same team or something, but you can't even assume that anymore. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's just a way that people try to describe good fortune. You know, things are going well. Uh, I've gotten everything I wanted. Maybe they ascribe that to God. Maybe they don't. And while good gifts from God are certainly a blessing in this life, biblically, this word means way, way, way more than that. Others have simplified the word blessed to mean happy. However, happiness is an emotional experience that comes and goes. And while blessings certainly do make us happy, and the word blessing would include happiness, it means something far beyond an emotional state that changes. The use of this word by Jesus here is a pronouncement of divine favor that has implications far beyond our circumstances and our feelings. It is a declaration of our status as kingdom citizens, a status that is unchanging even as our circumstances and feelings change. Jesus is stating in the Beatitudes that those who are God's children have a position of blessing that is secure. It is a pronouncement of security, a statement of that. There is an endurance to this position that will outlast this life. It will, it's eternal. It goes beyond the temporal experiences that we have. It's beyond this, this world and this life, although it certainly would include those. Those who have entered the kingdom are now and forever blessed. In a day and time when many think that blessing is simply riches, a comfortable life, or pleasures that we experience, 
Jesus is stating that blessing, this blessing that he's pronouncing is far beyond those things. One commentator notes, one's outward condition may be ever so enviable. In the end, it vanishes like a dream. God never made a soul so small that the whole world will satisfy it. God never made a soul so small that the whole world will satisfy it. Now the question arises, are these blessings for us now or are they for the future? I've kind of already answered that, but I want to make this clear. The answer is both. The blessings are both now and future. And we see this even in the language. For example, this is present tense. Blessed uh, are the poor in spirit for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. The others use a future tense, but I don't think that takes away from the present blessing in any sense. We see that we are comforted in this life. Uh, Scripture tells us that. We are satisfied by God in this life. We receive mercy in this life. We are called sons of God in this life. John Stott says, The promises of Jesus and the Beatitudes have both a present and a future fulfillment. We enjoy the first fruits now. The full harvest is yet to come. And so this first pronouncement then, those who are poor in spirit, says something about uh, our spiritual state. This is not a statement on our economic standing. It is also not a statement of, of our emotions, that is, despondency or anything like that. Poverty of spirit is an intentional acknowledgement that we come to God with empty hands. We could call this spiritual bankruptcy. We have nothing in our hands to contribute to the equation. Spiritual bankruptcy is a way of saying that we not only our accounts empty, it's actually in deficit, you know, like we're backwards. That's our condition, spiritually saying. And so when we are justified in Christ in this act of love given in grace and received by faith, our, we receive the credit of what Jesus did. Yet our attitude in this poverty of spirit isn't just a one-time position that when we're saved, it certainly would be necessary at salvation, a work that God does by His grace. But it describes us throughout our lives, a poverty of spirit that we recognize we still don't bring anything to the equation. We still walk by grace. Everything we do is by grace. We look backwards, we see the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we see progress that has been made, and we don't say, you know, don't I get a gold star? Now, if we're honest, we do, right? That's, we kind of, we want to bargain with God. Uh, we want to hold things up and say, don't, don't you owe me because of what I did? But when we're honest in the face of Scripture, we recognize that we bring nothing to the equation all along the way. It is all by grace. And so we walk continually acknowledging our utter dependence upon God for our salvation, our provision, our growth in grace, our breath, our health, our very life itself. Therefore, poverty of spirit produces in us a God-honoring humility in our approach to Him. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Poverty of spirit is the cause of humility. For when a person sees their want of Christ and how they live on the alms of free grace, this makes them humble. Those who are sensible of their own vacuity and indigence, ignorance and emptiness, with the violet hang down their heads in humility. Humility is the sweet spice that grows from poverty of spirit. Humility is the sweet spice that grows from poverty of spirit. One additional note is I have said that the Beatitudes describe Christ. And so you may wonder, how was he poor in spirit? 
Christ was without sin, and so how could we call him spiritually bankrupt? But the poverty of spirit that Jesus exemplified was this attitude, yet without sin. Think of how Jesus came, born as a human, as a baby, put on flesh, humbled himself. We've seen this in the baptism. Was that necessary? No. Uh, The temptation of Jesus, uh, in the sense, humanly necessary. Obviously, it was necessary in that God said this was to fulfill all righteousness. It was necessary for our salvation. It wasn't necessary for Jesus. He shows poverty of spirit in that. He shows poverty of spirit in the temptation. Ultimately, he took on our sin and died in our place, the ultimate poverty of spirit. So when we look at Christ, we see as one who is without sin, yet who took on and exemplified a poverty of spirit as the spotless Lamb of God. The promise that is given to those who are poor in spirit is that they possess the kingdom of heaven. This doesn't mean that poverty of spirit is meritorious. This is not a transaction. Rather, it is saying that the kingdom of heaven cannot be entered into without first having poverty of spirit. This posture, this attitude, which again we see in the end is a gift to us as well. God gives that to us. None can come to God with pride. No one brings anything in their hands. No one comes and stands on their own Uh, works or merits or things that they have accomplished. Instead, we bow before him, acknowledging that by grace alone we receive his forgiveness. And while the full blessing of the kingdom is future, it is certainly a present consequence of faith in Christ. We are now called his own in this life. We belong wholly to him. We are in the kingdom now. He is our king. And we are his subjects and receive both his blessings and protection as our sovereign. For those who are apart from Christ, this beatitude is a call for you to come before God, to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy, to fall upon the mercy of Christ. Call to him who is faithful that you may be forgiven your sins. Repent, believe that you may be made right that you may receive the kingdom, be received into the kingdom, to be called blessed forever. You who are walking by faith and trusting Christ today, you are also called to acknowledge your spiritual poverty. Moment by moment, we walk by faith and not in our own strength, our own wisdom, or our own righteousness. So every temptation, every struggle, every doubt, every pain, every threat, every obstacle we face must be met with the acknowledgement that Jesus is Savior alone. The way that we don't do this well is when we look to other things as our saviors, ourselves, things that pacify us, things that make us feel better. No labor of our hands, no good works that we do can fulfill the demands of the one who is holy. No amount of zeal, no river of tears can atone for our wrongdoings. Our righteousness Our righteousness and growth in grace is all in Christ and through Christ. So nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross of Christ we cling. In our spiritual nakedness, we look to Jesus alone to dress us in his righteousness. We come to Christ alone for his unending grace, flying to the fountain of mercy to be washed and made new. This means that we stop trying to be our own Savior. We must give up our attempts to be the Savior of others. We fight against looking to the world's saviors, 
to the things we cling to for, for, for fulfillment outside of Christ. He alone is Savior. So may we turn to him and hide ourselves in Christ, our rock and deliverer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this blessing that you have brought us to the end of ourselves, that you have shown us our emptiness, our bankruptcy, our need for you. Lord, I pray that for those here who have not come to that place, that you would bring them, that you would carry them along and cause them to see and call them to faith in Christ. Lord, thank you that there is a blessing both in the attitude and a blessing in the promise that those who are poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we don't even begin to comprehend all that is ours in this kingdom. As citizens, we take it for granted. We go through our lives. We fail to acknowledge your continual care of our, not just our bodies, but our souls, Lord, that you carry us through. So may every time that we struggle, every time that we're tempted, every time that we hurt in our bodies, every time that our bodies fail us, may we look to you and recognize that we have a security, a position that is called blessed, that is beyond this world beyond this life, that will outlast these bodies, that will outlast these pleasures, these experiences, the things that we look to and long for in this world that are so petty. Lord, help us to see our status as blessed in Christ Jesus. And may that move us, Lord, to live like the King. May we see Him and praise Him for who He is and all He has done for us and obeying perfectly in our place, and dying and taking on the wrath that we deserved, so that we might be called sons and daughters of God. We thank you for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.